Hi, this is Matt, and welcome to Conversation on Political Podcast. We are here today to talk about the second GOP debate, and I'm here today with Sean. What's up, guys? Joe. Hello. And Gina, who is here today with us for the first time. So, Gina, if you'd like to introduce yourself. Hey, guys. I'm Gina. I'm a cheerleader, pet owner of a corgi, and I am just now getting interested into politics. All right. Thank you, Gina. And uh, so we're going to start with one of the first candidates. He's your vote leader, probably the name you're hearing most associated with the uh, the race, and that is Donald Trump. So uh, I'm taking notes on it, looking at it, I divided everything into pros and cons, and the one thing that stands out with Trump is that his cons column is a lot longer than anybody else's. And to me, that started right at the beginning, because basically from the start of the debate, the Republicans were kind of putting up a unified front, saying that no matter who won the Republican nominee, they'd be happy with it, and basically trying to say that it's the Republicans versus the Democrats, not the Republicans versus each other. And then Trump started to speak, and one of the first things he said was, Rand Paul, why are you even on this stage? You're the 11th person, what are you doing here? And he kind of, I mean, he said that, and then the next thing he said was, but I clearly have the temperament to be the president of the United States, pretty much immediately contradicting himself. So, uh, what do you guys want to say Well, the overall impression I got from him is that he was losing the energy he had earlier in his campaign. I think at the debate we saw not as much of his teasing, of his ranting, of his uh, childish behavior. And I think for his campaign, that's a bad thing. And uh, I was just recently looking at poll results. And uh, this most recent CNN ORC was from the 17th to the 19th of September um, after the debate showed that his his support took an 8% uh dive. It was at 32% earlier in the month and it's now at 24%. And also 31% of of watchers identified him as the loser, whereas 52% identified Fiorina as the winner. And I think, you know, overall, the biggest problem for him is going to be recovering the energy he had before, because part of his allure is in how much energy he seems to have. It's how much, you know, people can look at him and how much he dominates the stage. But at the debate, we didn't see much of him except for in the beginning. After the ad hominem came to an end during the debate, he seemed to disappear into the shadows. Yeah, and I mean, if you watch it, the longer it went on into the debate, the more, like, when other people would speak, he would kind of start to thoughtfully nod and almost seem to agree with them, which is totally, it totally contradicts what we saw before, which is basically a me against the world, I'm right, I'm the best person ever attitude that we've pretty much seen the entire time. But I mean, going back to what he specifically believes in, I mean, he, from a business standpoint, he brings a lot of good things. Everywhere else, he really doesn't. He doesn't have a whole lot of experience with foreign policy, and he really does not have the temperament to be a president. He was basically calling out people left and right, insulting them as people, not just on their views, and I mean that's not the kind of thing that's going to fly in foreign relations at all. And I just want to play off of Sean a little bit. Uh, one of the first things I noticed about Trump is how flamboyant he is, and I think that's part of the reason why he's still ahead in the polls. Um, he has so much confidence in himself. He really riles up people. Um, what I also want to bring up about him is a lot of what he talked about seemed like filler. For example, um, like when uh, one of the speakers up front, they would ask him how he would do something. He said he would just do it. Well, how? Yeah, that's not a plan. Right. <laughs> yeah, and just to contrast that to another candidate who we'll bring up in more detail later, Fiorina. When she was asked how she'd do something, she had a specific plan. She knew exactly what she wanted to do. And Trump had none of that, with the exception of business a little bit. He kind of knew what he wanted to do there. And he wants to build a wall. Mm -hmm. Other than Mm -hmm. that, we have no specifics. And I I think part of uh, something that we can see about Trump, and this is something that has changed recently, is that 
Number one, he's very visual. And number two, he has a very, very strong focus on aesthetic. So uh, when you look at some of the comments he's made to people, not only uh, the comment he spoke about with Fiorina, uh, look at that face, would anybody vote for that face? Um, but also with things that he says on stage. For example, when he was talking to Paul and after his comment about how Paul shouldn't even be on the stage because he's the 11th on the stage, comments about people's looks. And I think this says something more um, than his childish behavior. I think it also says something about the lack of substance that's in, you know, some of the policy that he's put forth. He likes to make things look good. Um, you know, he has this obsession with making things look like they're going to get done, with making things look like they're great, with making America look like it isn't great already. And I think he, you know, the lack of focus that he has on actual substance is definitely going to be detrimental to his campaign. Yeah. And going off of that, I mean, you could see you could see the appearance start to crumble a little bit when Bush called him out, basically saying, you tried to pay us off for something about like building casinos in Florida or something. And Bush was like, I said no, because I'm not going to be bought off. Mm -hmm. And Trump didn't really have a response to that. His only response was, I didn't do that, which doesn't come off well. There's no, there's no reasons behind it. And I mean, if you look at his history, that's consistent with everything he's ever done. Like he paid off the Clintons. He played, paid off politicians in the past. That's what he's done. That's how he's a lot of how he's made a living. And one of the thing that concerns me, though, and, you know, I don't think this is going to change anything in the polls because it's been fairly constant. Um, but I was just thinking about it the other day is he makes this argument about how in the business world, he plays the government. He takes advantage of the system that he's given and he plays the government. And he says that I know the government. I know how the government works. I know how people take advantage of it. So when I'm president, I'm going to fix it. Um, but one of the things that concerns me is he says that his strategy and his entire life, which has been business so far, is to take advantage of systems that exist. Um, sure, he could fill up loopholes, you know, and he could repair, and he could repair faults in the law. But that doesn't mean he's not going to take advantage of the powers of the president. You know, for a person who's proven for so long uh, to take advantage of the system that he's given, don't we have concerns about what he's going to do when he's in that office? Yeah, I mean, because he could take advantage of it for on like on behalf of the American people and make it work for us. Or he could take advantage of it on behalf of himself for personal gain, for getting himself money, for helping his business interests. I mean, he hasn't really shown that he can be a trustworthy figure or things like that. And uh, now we want to move on to the second candidate that we wanted to talk about, which is Ben Carson. He's also, I mean, he moved up a lot from the first debate to the second debate. And I have to say, he didn't, for me personally, he didn't really stand out. Like, this is the one thing I've had with him is that he's obviously, if you look at his past, he's obviously an intelligent person. But I don't really seem to see that a whole lot on the stage. There's nothing about him to me that wows me. I don't know. What about you guys? Uh, personally, I, I just disagree slightly. I thought his stance and his poise really spoke volumes. Whenever he spoke, I just felt really calm. He was so sure of everything that he was saying. Um, specifically, what I felt spoke volumes was his comment about racism. He mentioned how an NPR... Um, media person had asked him what he felt about racism and he said well I, I can't really comment on that because I'm a brain surgeon so really what I do whenever I have a client coming in I'm focusing on what truly makes them who they are their brain skin color hair color has no matter no issue to him and I just thought that was huge because here we have um, a black Republican representing um, he he wants to become the president of the United States, and his and not with his views on racism, 
I just thought that was that was really amazing of him to say that. I think though he also had a responsibility to to, to capitalize on his pole standing because he was he was not number two a few months ago. Uh, if we yeah, think he, back he to the really first debate, shot up after the uh, first debate, he shot up, and it wasn't really it wasn't necessarily immediately after the first debate, but as time went on, all of a sudden he sank from the shadows and became number two in the polls. And I think, you know, one of the uh, the points of criticism I had about the debate was that I thought that the moderate moderator didn't have enough control over the candidates. I thought that. It had to be one way or the other. Either you control the candidates or you let them bounce everything off of one another. And as the debate went on, candidates start candidates started to get this impression that, you know, they could talk right off of one another and that there was no boundaries to what they could say. And I think with that came a responsibility to speak up, to make yourself heard, and to show that no matter what's going on, you can always make your voice heard over the chaos. And, and with Carson, yeah, I just didn't see it. Yeah, that's that's not his strong suit. His strong suit isn't being the loudest person in the room, it's being the calmest person sitting back and evaluating things. And that's probably why he didn't stand out, at least to me, because he didn't get a whole lot of speaking time. He was talked over by everybody else. I think that's what was one of his strongest traits, the fact that he wasn't getting so emotional with it. He wasn't using rage against his his com- contenders. He was, he was um, reserved. He let the other people speak. And then when it was his time to speak, he would say something so profound. profound. He's such a brilliant man. And- there was also one thing, we'll talk more about Rubio later, but one of the things I noticed was that there was a point of contrast between Carson and Rubio in that they both had the same temperament in the beginning of the debate. They both recognized the odd hominem. They didn't want any part in it. And Carson was very, wasn't heard very often in the beginning of the debate and neither was Rubio. But as the debate went on, things became, you know, began to become different. And that's where when we talk about Rubio later, we'll mention that he became louder. He had a voice, whereas Carson's Carson seemed to remain in the shadows. Yeah. And just two things about Carson. First of all, the one of the other concerns I have with him is basically he has no experience of any kind with foreign relations. He's the, probably the only person up there who doesn't really have that because even the business people, they do business overseas. They know what it's like to do business in other countries, and I haven't really seen anything like that in Carson. And even with the foreign relations segments, there wasn't a whole lot of substance from him there. And also going off what Gina was saying about him being reserved and kind of a logical, quiet person. I, that's good, but I think, like, uh, to put up another example, Fiorina, she was very articulate and intelligent about what she said, and she wasn't overly emotional, Emotional, but she made sure that she fought for her time to speak, she got out there, and when she said something, she made sure she captured your attention and got her point across, and that's where I see the contrast with Carson, like, if he was a little bit more aggressive with the mm-hmm. way he spoke, I think it would come off a lot better. Mm-hmm. And bring up Fiorina, because I want to get on to her, because I think she was the real winner of that debate. I mean, she was strong. She had specifics in her points. She knew exactly what she wanted to say. And she basically built off of what I think a lot of people liked about her in the first debate, what got her into the top 10 in the first place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think definitely her responsibility in that debate was to show that she was going to be just as strong a candidate as everyone else. I think, you know, she wanted to be up on that stage. She didn't want to stand out because she was only the, the only woman on that stage. She wanted to stand out because she was the only strong candidate on stage. And I think that she was. I think... In this debate, she was facing the most, her most in- intimidating opponents. I think part of her responsibility was to say, look at me, not because I'm a woman, but look at me because I'm strong. Look at me because I can stand up to, stand up to everyone on this stage, including Trump, and to show that I'm not afraid to raise my voice. And again, there was just as much contrast between Rubio and Carson as there was between, uh, between Fiorina and Carson. She, and I think in the beginning, she was much louder than the two of those were, but she definitely kept her voice raised. And when she wanted to speak, she spoke. And I think that was one of the advantages that came out of the moderation of this debate. It was showing 
who could stand up to everyone else on stage and who could say, listen, I'm going to take charge of the situation right now. And I think in this debate, it was definitely her. Yeah, I agree with Matt. I think she definitely won this debate. I want to go to her point about um, when she was asked, what woman would she have on the $10 bill? And she got right to it. She said she wouldn't worry about that. It's just a gesture. Changing the history of the $10 bill isn't really going to do anything. And she, I, I love her because she just has so much depth to what she's saying. And everything that she says gets straight to the point, but she provides all the information to it. It's, there's no filler. There's no gray area. When she speaks, she speaks with a purpose. Right. And another one of the things, another specific example of that was she, when they were talking about foreign relations with the Iran deal, she was basically talking extremely specifically about if she were president, what she would do to combat Iran, to combat ISIS, the nuclear strikes against Russia. And I mean, Trump, in some respects, spoke with specifics as to what he would do against Russia, but it wasn't really logical. It wasn't really thought out versus how Fiorina had a plan that seemed based in reality and being practical, doing something that would actually work. And mm -hmm. fit on the world stage. Yeah, and in our first show, we were talking about how, you know, at this point, part of people's choice in the candidate is going to be about who can we see, not necessarily doing what they believe, but who can see someone just doing something, just getting something done. And I think the only way you can evaluate that criteria uh, in a debate this early is by looking at how well they dominate a stage, how powerful they look, how devoted to their ideas they look. And there were a lot of points that other candidates seem to be faltering on. Uh, some people point out that Carson was faltering on his immigration stance and other people uh, were pointing fingers everywhere else. But I, don't, I haven't seen much difference in what she's planned to do. I've seen uh, you know, a lot of steadfastness. I've seen a lot of continuity in her plans. And I've seen, you know, to sum it up, a lot of strength. Yeah. And Another point is that the one big thing people had against Fiorina coming into this was her history at HP and how she got fired and didn't really leave the company on good terms. They brought that up in the debate, and I thought she answered it really, really well. She basically said, the company is a lot better off now because of what I did. The, what, the current CEO or whatever basically came out and said, I made a mistake by firing her. A full-page ad, I think, in the New York Times or something about how it was a mistake to get rid of her. And basically that she may have laid off a lot of people, but... It was actually, that's part of the plan. That's what happens when companies merge. You have to lay people off. And basically, their profits went up after that. And even though the tech market as a whole was suffering, so the company suffered a little bit despite that, or because of that, they were, the, uh, the other major competitors at the time were falling out of business, and she kept them in business. I think that was huge. All right, and another person, I thought this person uh, would go really well with Fiorina if they were to work together, and that's Marco Rubio. I thought when one thing that jumped out to me again, they were talking about the Iran deal, because that was a lot of time that they ta spent talking about it. I thought that their plan for it seemed to work really well together, and I thought both of them, Fiorina and Rubio, are both extremely strong candidates. They spoke with a purpose, and they seemed to really know what they wanted to do, try to capture mm -hmm. people's attention. Yeah, and you, you know, you definitely want mutual respect between the candidates that are going to run with one another. And I think uh, one place where that mutual respect would exist is between two candidates, Rubio and Fiorina, um, where they have definitely shown that they're not necessarily out to get any of the other candidates. They're not out to personally attack any of the other candidates, uh, but they're they're out to make sure that people kn people hear them, people know what their plans are. So, you know, saying that, I think it's a good time to move on to Rubio. Um, and I think this is an area where, this is uh, from the previous debates, you know, this is my favorite candidate. And Rubio's, from the very beginning, has been my favorite candidate. And to try to be as fair as possible, in the beginning, I was just, in the beginning, especially the first hour, 
my reaction was that I was disappointed as to how little he was speaking. And, you know, I was getting more and more frustrated as to how I thought that he had to stand up and make his voice heard. But, you know, in retrospect, I realized why he wasn't the only one that did this. But in retrospect, I do realize why he did it. And I think that was because, as Kasich said during the debate, this was so much ad hominem and he didn't want any part of it. If you try to think of one time when Rubio went after another candidate personally, I can't find one, and I'm sure you guys can't find one if, if, you know, if you can correct me, but I don't think there was one time where he went after someone because of anything other than policy or history. And, you know, people obviously like Trump being the archetype of going uh, after someone for personal reasons. Uh, he was definitely the, the contrast. And I think that when he finally stood up and began, people, he, he began to make himself heard, uh, that's when people realized, okay, well, I understand why he wasn't speaking. He was waiting for his opportunity to say what he had to say, not necessarily about other people's personal faults, um, but about his real substan substantiated policy directions. Yeah. yeah, similar to how I felt with Fiorina, when Rubio began talking, um, especially in the beginning when he um, brought up how he brought his own water bottle to California, I could definitely sense that was him just trying to be personable. And I really appreciate that because whenever I see um, uh, President Obama on the screen or any um, previous pre president in the past, um, I just, it's hard to really get a connection to the person who's leading mm -hmm. your, your future sometimes because there's never really any personal connection, like human to human. However, when he made that joke, I, I just laughed because I really had an appreciation for him trying to get the 24 million people watching him to laugh. Um, also, um, I noticed how well-informed he was, and granted, you have to be very well-informed to be running for president. However, um, when he mentioned immigration and how not all the illegal immigrants coming to America aren't are not just from Mexico. They're coming from places like Guatemala, Costa Rica, other countries in South America. It really isn't just Mexico anymore, which seems to be the stereotype. I had no idea about that. So I really felt like I was being informed by a possible future leader. Yeah, I think that's another thing. And going off what Gina said about him being relatable, the other thing is that, I mean, if you look at his history, what his family was refugees from mm -hmm. Cuba, correct? Yeah. And, I mean, that's the kind of thing, I mean, Americans as a whole, we love the underdog story. We love somebody that started with nothing and built their way up, and Rubio has that, and Fiorina have that. Mm -hmm. I mean, they both have that type of story that makes them relatable, and the kind of person that Americans want to root for. They want them to succeed. Yeah, and, you know, I want to build on what both Matt and Gina said about his relatability, and this is my problem with Fiorina, is that they both have great stories. They both have underdog stories. However... There's just something about Rubio, and this isn't necessarily the reason I would vote for him, but there is just something about him um, that's more relatable, that's more, you know, that says, I can see myself in him. Now, to let me, you know, to clarify, um, I would never be as talented an orator as Rubio is. He's probably the most talented orator of everyone on stage. And I, I can't connect at all to having parents who had to endure the same refugee situation as his did. However, despite all the differences, I can still see some of Matt, some of Gina, some of people like us in him. There's just something about his candidacy, something about his persona. It that seems says, genuine. Yeah. I, I think being genuine is extremely important in this election, especially when you look across the aisle and you've got Hillary Clinton, who I think is the epitome of somebody who is not relatable, not somebody who you can really see in yourself at all. She's very much establishment and very much out for herself. And she's kind of she's been living the political high life for 30 years now. And somebody like Rubio is young. Fiorina started out like many. She started what like 
in the call center of her company, I want to mm-hmm. say. Yep. Positions that many people have either held or they know somebody who's been in that situation. And I think that's extremely important, especially if you're going against Hillary. Because I mean, for young people, especially people like us who are going to be getting out of college, right, when this president's leaving office, you want to make sure it's somebody who understands the world you live in and can yeah. make that world better. Yeah. And that's where those two candidates, I think, both stand out. And, you know, to start to sum up uh, the things that I think Rubio are both Rubio's strengths and he needs to continue to capitalize on, um, I just want to make a few points. One is um, he does make he does make a very, very strong effort to reach out to the younger generation. He His, you know, his campaign promise is a new American century. Um, and basically what he's trying to say is that America is changing and that and he's not necessarily pointing his fingers at older politicians and saying that they don't understand the same, but he's saying that we definitely need to focus on the younger generation in America. We need to make it easier for the family, the, you know, the most important unit in, in American and world society. And, uh, especially his focus on college education, making education more accessible, not only in college degrees, but in, uh, vocational programs. I think also, um... You know, the second point of strength I think he has is that while other candidates are pointing in America and saying, look at what we've become, he's saying, look at what we are. We haven't become this, you know, terrible, you know, country that's impossible to live in that some other some other candidates seem to make it out to be. We live in a country that's already great. We and, and are not, a country that's great. And not just what we are, it's what we can be. He mm-hmm. looks at the country and sees a lot of promise and really wants to look to the future and make this, and like Sean said, a new American century, a century where we can really be great. Yeah, and I think that's something that both Democrats and Republicans should pay attention to because here's someone who, from at least from what I've seen, seems so genuine in, a, in the future for our generation, the generation before us, no matter who you are, no matter what you believe in. He wants the generation a little bit prior to him to have this incredible future, to have the opportunity to stick with your job, not to be laid off. And I think that's really important for each party side to see, that this is not someone who's trying to go out there and... Um, like crumble, crumble the ideas of people who disagree with him. He wants, he wants to have a great, great future for everyone. And I think you know the last thing I'm going to say about him is this: that um, there's something about the things that he says about immigration that I think speak to him as a whole, or speak to speak to the person that he is as a whole. And that's what he's been saying about immigration is twofold. One, like Gina said before, there are people coming from other countries, and that he challenges the stereotype that. Uh, the immigration problem is just a Mexican immigration problem. It's an immigration problem. But also, he's the one candidate the other night who said we have a different immigration problem. We have more than one. He said we have three immigration problems in that the people who want to be here get here based on a family sponsor, not necessarily on merit. We live in a great country, but those who fight for it and those who prove that they have the merit to that they have the merit to be here, I think should be here as well. It shouldn't be this judgment shouldn't be being based on family that you have here. The judgment should be based based on who's, who has proven in their life that they're going to make it here, that they're going to work hard to make this country a better place. And also, I think he proves, you know, he tries to talk about how many people we have here who have gotten here, who have succeeded and made this country a better place because they are from somewhere else, because they carry a different perspective. And what this says about him as a whole is he looks at problems um, that we think we have and he turns them into turns them into pros. He turns some of the things that you know He turns some of the stereotypes that we have he, you know He flips them upside down and says you're forgetting to take the good from these situations And I think you know just like Reagan did just like Reagan saw the good in America He's proven very you know, both directly and indirectly that he would do the same And I just want to shift the, this a little bit because I want to with the time we have left I want to talk about some of the other candidates that we haven't talked about yet 
And speaking of relatability, there was one candidate up there that really stood out to me as somebody who's relatable, and that was Kasich. Mm -hmm. He didn't necessarily have the strongest delivery. He didn't necessarily have the strongest points, but he almost like he seemed like it was like your dad up there or something. He just seemed kind of like a fatherly figure, very middle of the road, not an, an overly emotional person, very kind of logical and just let's think about this all the way through. Mm-hmm. And I really liked that about him. Yeah, you know, I'm uh, the first person that I would mention other than the four candidates that we talked about already is Kasich. He's the first person that comes to mind. I've liked him from the beginning. I, I, I remember saying in the first podcast about the first debate that if there's a ticket that I like, which I still think I'd like this ticket, maybe not the best, but I'd love a Rubio-Kasich ticket. I think that Kasich, you know, I don't know enough about him. I don't know enough about his history. But what I do know is that he's a man who's, you know, moderate in his views about many, many social issues, but also a person who, who is just as relatable in many ways as Rubio and Fiorina were. And I think this is somebody who's proven that his priority isn't necessarily to smudge the reputations of others. His, his priority isn't necessarily to dictate morals to the rest of the country. He's proven that in a lot of ways, he thinks the you know, the moral dictate of our people is to love our neighbor. And it seems simple, it seems corny, but it's true, you know, because the thing I still remember about him was the moment he said that if there was somebody, you know, if there, if it, one of his daughters happened to be lesbian, he'd ju- love them just as much as he loves them now. And I think that speaks to his person as a whole. No matter how corny it sounds, it's true. Yes, again, and this is something that I really was excited to dive into about him. Um, again, with the the division between the Democrat and the Republican Party, here's a man, again, who is on that right-wing side, but he still he still says that just because if, if someone's gay, they... Here, I'm, I need to quote him because it, it just... And he says, Guess what? I just went to a wedding of a friend of mine who happens to be gay. Because somebody doesn't think the way I do doesn't mean that I can't care about them or can't love them. So if one of my daughters happened to be that, of course I would love them and I would accept them. Because you know what? That's what we're taught when we have strong faith. I just... I don't know, that really spoke volumes to me because the status quo is that Republicans are against gays and they hate them. Well, look at this man who just contradicted that status quo. Here's a guy who's, who is so compassionate. He says, okay, if someone's gay, I don't necessarily it need to believe... It doesn't make them a bad person. It doesn't yeah. make them a bad person. It doesn't mean that I have to agree with that, but it doesn't mean I can't love or appreciate my time mm-hmm. with them. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think that's so important. If someone's going to run the country, they need to be accepting of all people. Yeah, I, I think that's great. I mean, I heard the same thing. That was my reaction, too. And I mean, looking at it, I think that there's three top candidates right now. If I had to pick a mix of these three for president and vice president, it would probably be Rubio, Fiorina, and Kasich. I think mm-hmm. with Kasich as a vice president, with one of the other two as president, first of all, it's going to be a strong enough ticket that you'll be able to win a lot of votes because, I mean, Kasich's Ohio, Rubio is Florida. That's a lot right there. Mm-hmm. And also Fiorina, you got the female vote there with Fiorina and something good if you have to go up against Hillary. Mm-hmm. And just overall, some strong opinions covers a, a really wide spectrum. You've got people who seem to want to listen to the American people and then take that and use it to make the country better. Yeah, I think that was really good. And we've also, we've only got a couple minutes left here. So I just wanted to say one thing that stood out to me I think after watching the debate, there were three candidates that I pretty much crossed off my list and said, these three people, I don't want them to be president. One of them is Donald Trump, who who we've obviously talked a lot about. Second one was Chris Christie. And I think the thing that I didn't like about him, he seemed to be playing the victim way too much. He seemed to be getting overly emotional about things and basically wanted to make it a pity party all about him because he was talking about 
first of all, how he's like a minority in his own state. But he I means he's governor. You have to, the majority of the state has to elect you to be the governor, mm-hmm. which means he's obviously not some outcast mm-hmm. if he's living there. Yeah. And the other thing is he kept bringing up the 9-11 thing over and over again, and that was also in the first debate and in this one. And I think, I don't know, I mean, that was 14 years ago, and he's just, he seems like he's trying to milk it for political votes. See, you know, I agree with Matt, and I disagree. And, um, you know, one of the ways I felt about with him, about him was that, relatively speaking, um, relative to the last debate, he was much better. He was he had a much better temperament because the last debate, if um, we remember, and he was very, he was he started, very aggressive. Yeah, and he started off very strong in it, and then yes. to me, kind of faltered. And it was too strong, and then he all of a sudden fell off his pedestal during that debate. And I think during this debate, he was much more calm, he was steadier, and he was more secure in his positioning. I can see where Matt's coming from on you know on the playing the victim card and everything, but you know I think his performance overall was much better. I think he looked much more um, relatable. My problem with him with him is I just don't see enough of an impression on people. I just don't see see it very likely that he would win a nomination. And um, by the way, guys, after Gina talks a little bit about Chris Christie, I think it'd be a great way to wrap up again just to talk about our picks and you know it would be a great way to sum up the rest of the yeah, show. Absolutely. Yeah, I just I agree with both what Matt and Sean were saying. Um, what I noticed from the second GOP debate re- um, regarding Christie, he seemed to put a lot of his personal emotion into everything. It almost looked like he was about to have a temper tantrum up there a couple of times. Um, and personally, that would make me nervous to see him as leader of our country because when it comes to foreign policy or talking to other very important leaders about you know domestic issues or whatever it may be, you don't really want someone who's getting too emotional with things you need to you don't want someone being too subjective you want someone who's objective has a little bit of you know personal background can really be compassionate but not overboard yeah absolutely agree oh and to go with what sean was saying about wrapping things up gina if you had to vote for somebody from the republicans right now who do you think it would be based on right what you saw. now based on what i saw I honestly, I think I would have to go with Rubio. To me, Rubio was the epitome of a good leader. He was compassionate. He really knew what he was talking about. And I just, I felt a connection. Not only, I could see, not, not as like a parent leader, but yeah. I just, he, I just saw him as a true leader. He knew what he was talking about. He informed me. He taught me something that I had no idea about. He broke stereotypes. He, he had such great humor up there, which I thought was really brave. So my vote was Rubio. Yeah, and to concur with Gina, I had a little excitement tantrum. Uh, yeah, for, for those, that. obviously you're not here, but for the listeners, when uh, Gina said that, Sean was sitting in his chair and did a kind of fist pump. Yep. Uh, <laughs> well, I'm still going to stick with my pick of Rubio um, for a lot of the same reasons as Gina and the same reasons uh, that I said before. Um, I think, uh, you know, I have to say something to be fair. I think he could have had a little bit of a stronger voice during the debate, um, but he's still my pick. And I think, you know, based, I, I don't think I've, Heard enough to heard enough or seen enough to pick a vice presidential presidential candidate, but I think Kasich completes anyone's ticket. I think that he's a great moderate voice to complete anyone's anyone's ticket on that entire stage. Um, you know, I can I can relate to the guy almost as much as I can relate to Rubio. And you know, after this debate, I think my pick is the same: Rubio Kasich ticket. Yeah. I actually, I mean, I agree with Rubio, but just to play devil's advocate here, because I don't want to be the same as everybody else, I'm I'll say Fiorina. I mean, she was strong. She had specifics, like we said before, and she just she seems like she would be a really good leader for this country. Yeah, she's my second pick. If I, I would definitely say that her and Rubio were the winners of this poll. Absolutely. And uh, with that, we've reached the end here, and uh, thanks for listening, and hopefully you'll listen again.